Welcome back to Like a Bigfoot Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, I am very honored to sit down and uh, kind of get to hear the adventures of today's guest. Uh, Sunny Struer is an adventurer, a mountain athlete. She's, she basically does it all. Like if you name uh, outdoor endurance or outdoor exploration, she has definitely like taking it all on it's amazing some of the things she's done some of her uh major summits around the world uh different mountain or rock climbing different uh you know long fkts she's taken on or long trails that she'll go out and trail run or um fast pack and things like that uh she also has just an incredibly inspiring story uh, which i'll kind of let her tell in the podcast but basically she went from high level business uh with a harvard mba to um deciding that that life really wasn't the life that she wanted to live or the life that was really like stoking her passion um and then uh shortly after turning 30 she decided to basically uh, live in a van and go climbing and running and playing around in the outdoors. And I'm really excited to kind of uh, talk to Sunny about, you know, that decision, what ultimately led her um, down the path of an adventurer. Um, and then really, like when I was looking through the things she's done, she's done, she's taken on some really unique adventures. So we start by talking about, uh what she experienced on the Hey Duke Trail. And after doing 300 and some episodes of this podcast, I don't think I've ever talked to somebody who has done the Hey Duke Trail. And you will we'll get into it, so I think we'll give you enough background info about it, but you should look it up. It looks amazing. It looks like if you're looking at like a long trail, I think it's like 800 and some miles, it looks like it is the way to see the southwest if you want to see utah arizona and all like all of it and really immerse yourself into it um while also doing something really challenging and i guess maybe i'm not recommending the hey duke trail for everyone because from what i've seen logistically like you have to you know have your have it together you know what i mean like you have to be able to like know that you're comfortable in the outdoors and and be able to survive some really harsh conditions and make sure you understand navigation and things like that like it does seem like it's potentially like a really dangerous through hike just based on water levels and some stuff we'll talk to sunny about um but sunny did it so it was really cool to like hear about her experience taking that on and what she found in the desert um i just i loved 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 hearing about the Hayduke Trail so I'm super psyched to share that with you uh then we talk about the Iditarod Trail Invitational uh that is is one of my favorite topics one of my favorite uh events to hear about because and I've, I've said it on every podcast we've done about the Iditarod um but it truly captures my imagination I don't know man I think it's the uh I think it has to be the deep wilderness immersion, but in a different way from the desert, right? Like deserts open, um, wide open spaces and you're dealing with obviously different factors, but the, the Iditarod, you're just in the North woods and with all the animals and wildlife and, and snow and ice and mountains, like everything that brings. And, and that always just seems so like, I, I, as a host of an outdoor endurance or sports or whatever podcast, I, I do realize like the word epic can be overused sometimes, maybe by me, I'm probably guilty of it. Um, but when I think of the Iditarod and the Hey Duke, if you want to throw that in there too, like I truly think that those two events or those two trails or whatever define the word epic so um so yeah maybe i should just call this maybe i should just call this episode like epic adventures um with sunny um so so yeah that's what this one is it's just sunny sharing some epic adventures sharing what she's learned through her journey uh she's very passionate very um amazing amazing human being and i'm lucky to have crossed paths with her so 
Let's get right into it. This is Like a Bigfoot podcast number 318 with Sonny Stroer. Welcome to the show. I'm very excited to talk with you. Thanks, Chris. Super stoked to be here and uh, I can't wait to see what we're going to get into. So I was looking through your website and I saw like the massive amounts of adventures that you've taken on, or especially over like the last like six six or seven years at this point. Um, but I want to start with one that I don't think we've ever mentioned on the podcast before, but I'm like very interested in, and that is the Hey Duke Trail. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because I will say I'm in a text thread with a couple like adventure friends and the Hey Duke Trail has come up a couple times. <laughs> That's a great adventure actually to start with and a great one to talk about. It's probably one of my favorite adventures from the last couple of years. Um, and the Hayduk route, you know, for everybody who's not familiar, is a cross-country, long-distance backpacking route across mostly the state of Utah. It's about 800 miles, 812 if you do it by the book. And it goes from the north side of Arches National Park down to Canyonlands, um, over to Capitol Reef, Grand Staircase, Escalante, Bryce, um, then down to the Grand Canyon, and finally it ends up in Zion. So it's a pretty wild adventure. Um, you know, most people um you know we'll talk about it as a as a route because there are some trail sections but you know a lot of it doesn't have an official trail and uh, it's just a really cool way to explore the desert that sounds well i mean it sounds like it's the tour it's the tour of like the southwest down here you know like it just has to be if you have the time to spend, you know, that much time out on on the trail or on the route, yeah, that's the way to see the Southwest. It is stunningly beautiful. It's amazing. It's pretty far off the beaten path in a lot of spots. Um, you know, there's a couple of others that are not quite that off the beaten path, but yeah, a lot of it is very, very solitary. It's way out there, um, and it's just absolutely mind-blowingly beautiful. Yeah. Well, I know it's been described, at least when I've heard of it, as like almost like expert level and i think it's probably due to the fact that water is probably scarce like during the backpack can you kind of speak to that a little bit yeah water is difficult because you know since you're traversing the desert essentially and you really are doing a lot of stretches where you don't have any resupplies and you know no access to towns or whatnot you are relying on natural water sources and um they can be far and few between you know because yeah. there's a couple of sections where you're crossing rivers or you're going alongside rivers and creeks and then there's natural springs but there's also big sections where you're crossing you know high plateaus that don't have any permanent springs and at that point, you're essentially reliant on potholes and on rainwater that may or may not have collected that year. And that makes it really difficult. And then, you know, the water sources that are typically reliable, they tend to vary with um, the years as well, depending on, you know, how the snowpack was in the winter and just how the springs are producing. And then there are some streams and springs that are incredibly alkaline. So even though you have water, you really can't drink from them because yeah. they're so salty that they're actually going to make you more thirsty. So uh, it's a bit of a challenge. <laughs> so let me ask you this, like, where does the, the confidence come from to go out and take that on? Because, and, and, and on along those lines, like, was there fear involved at any point, just like based on running out of water? I was definitely nervous before the backpack, but yeah. um, here's the thing. So I had never done a long distance through hike until the Hayduk. That was the very first you know, through hike that I did. And I just kind of figured I'd done lots of backpacking, you know, on shorter stretches. I'd done lots of remote expeditions yeah. for kind of more localized stuff. I was like, how bad can it be, right? What's the best? Of <laughs> now, I was nervous about the water situation, but I also had something playing in my favor, which is that I set out from the very beginning to do the Hayduk very fast. Oh, yeah. And so my kind of, you know, backup um, assumption was that if I were to get myself in a pickle, you know, I'd be able to move fast enough to either retreat to, you know, the last known water source or just, you know, push through it and get it done. So um, that was a bit of a reassurance. Yeah. Was there any part where you were kind of like concerned out there or did it all kind of work out where you're able to find some? From a water perspective, I was mostly fine. It was one day relatively early on actually going through Canyonlands, which on my itinerary was like day three or day four, I think. 
um, where I was running out of water and I, you know, had not budgeted properly and wasn't able to, to find anything until I came across this really alkaline stream that had me super excited until I tasted it and I realized I couldn't drink it. Yeah. But, uh, that also happened to be a day where there actually was a dirt road that okay. I had go along for a while and it was a, a van lifer <laughs> who uh, was very very nice and gave me a little bit of water so that worked out and outside of that the, the water situation was fine I did have some other you know dicey moments on the trail but nothing related to water itself yeah what uh I gotta ask about the dicey moments then and I'm also gonna say me and my, my friends were talking about like kind of like section hiking it you know like uh four or five days out on it, maybe through arches and part of Canyonlands to start. Um, I have a couple of buddies who are really gung ho about doing the whole thing. And I'm like, ah, I wish I could. But um, yeah, so what what kind of dicey situations were there? I think the diciest time that I had was in the Grand Canyon. And the Grand yeah. Canyon is kind of known as, you know, the crux of the Haydu because you're spending about 150 miles in the canyon and only a small portion of that, of course, is on the corridor trails. You know, the rest of it is going east-west. You start on the far east side coming down Nankaweep Trail and then you have to figure out a way to get across the Colorado River, which, you know, typically you do by hitching a ride on a raft. Yeah. And then, you know, you go east-west for a while and then you finish it up after going across the corridor trails by Phantom Ranch. You finish it up on the north side side and you do some you know off trail kind of cross country um some people call it hiking i've seen others referred to as canyoneering um sections and you know really i there's no technical canyoneering involved with the Hayduke, but there is one section that is known to be you know pretty committing and just you know very slow and with a couple of moves that are difficult to reverse like you have this canyon where you're essentially bushwhacking into yeah. a drainage and then you end up in a slot canyon where you have to you know do like slip and slides and all of these shoots so essentially you sit down you know on a sandstone shoot that delivers you into a pothole and you land in the water in the pothole and then you get out of the pothole you do it all over again and you have i don't know probably I don't know, uh, a dozen, maybe two dozen of those slides. And um, I started down that section in my, I guess, somewhat characteristic, naive, and I would say maybe overconfident fashion at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, and I got benighted in the shoots. And of course, you know, if you're at the bottom of a slot canyon and you're going through all of these slip and slide moments, there's no place where you can sleep because first off, you don't have any real dry, flat ground, but you're also at the bottom of a drainage. And from a flash flood perspective, you don't ever want to camp at the bottom of a drainage yeah. where you can reach higher ground, right? So I just kept going, kept going. And um, again, I was on my own. Um, I'd gotten benighted because I started down the section really late in the afternoon after already putting down a bunch of big miles earlier in the day. And I just kind of got on autopilot. And, you know, every time I saw a shoot, I just sit down, you know, go for it, push off, slide into the pool and then do it all over again. Well, I finally got to a shoot that, you know, had a relatively benign incline, but I couldn't see the bottom of it. And because I was an autopilot and, you know, I'd been going for so long, it was like 930 in the evening at this point, I sat down and I was about ready to push off. And all my senses just kind of screamed at me. They were like, do not do this. You know, this is bad. And I backpedaled because I was like, this just doesn't feel right. I can't see where this is going. I don't know where I'm going to land. You know, I really don't like this. So I got back off my butt and retraced my steps a little bit and looked around to see if there was maybe a bypass. And I did end up finding a cairn that led me to a bypass. And, uh, you know, so I go and try and do the bypass by the light of my headlamp I can't see very much and it leads me into this pretty exposed really steep terrain and you know I probably navigated that for another 15-20 minutes or so and then I finally found this tiny little flat spot where I was like okay you know this is just stupid I'm getting really strung out I have no idea where I am I'm just going to go to sleep right here where I am on this tiny little you know flat yeah. saddle on the trail and I'm very happy that I did because I woke up in the morning and now for the first time I could actually see what was all around me, right? Because it's light now. Yeah. And when I realized it, that that bypass that I had just gone down because I was listening, you know, to my intuition saying, do not go and do that shoot. It was actually the bypass for the exit of the canyon. And the exit of the canyon was about a 200 foot dry fall. So if I had slid down that shoot, I would have gone down a 200 foot dry fall and that would have been it. So um, wow. yeah, that was like And that was pure intuition. You know, I mean, it was intuition. I think it was some, you know, just awareness of my surroundings for sure yeah. as well. I could feel 
um, you know, with the beam of my headlamp, I could sense the canyon opening up around me, right? So typically I'd been in this very narrow, confined slot canyon and I could see the walls and, you know, the beam of my headlamp would kind of reach. And yeah. then all of that went away and I had the shoot, but I didn't see the canyon walls all around me anymore. And, you know, I've spent enough time in canyons to understand that that means that there's something going on below me, right? Yeah. But I certainly wasn't processing that information uh, well enough uh, to to not consider going down that chute in the first place. So that yeah. is wow. That is terrifying to think about. And when you're I want to ask, like when you're in the middle of an adventure like that, where it's a multi day, multi almost like beyond a month, right? Like 30 some days. Um, are you able to process that? in the moment or is that like when you're all done or is it like the next day hiking like how does that work out in your brain i mean i think it was um in the moment it was a bit of just trying to not make stupid decisions after i'd already made one very stupid decision to start down that section at three in the afternoon and mind you the guidebook warns you about the sections and you know it yeah. tells you this is really slow and you know very committing yeah um, so i'd made one stupid decision and then i was trying to not follow that up with more stupid decisions so you know where i finally was able to bed down and find a very marginal baby spot for the night i wasn't really i didn't really have that oh my god moment yet you know i didn't realize just how close i'd come to making a really really bad decision yeah. but then the next morning when i saw that dry fall and what i'd almost slid down i um you know i certainly had a moment of like wow yeah. this, was, this was really bad and yeah. it made me question you know some of my decision making and my my intuition and my understanding of my environment but at the same time you know you're out in the middle of nowhere and it's like what are you going to do right in a way it's water under the bridge and thank god i did not yeah. continue on you know what i was about to do but at that point you just kind of keep going you're like okay learn from the situation and uh, make sure you don't ever come close to anything like this ever again yeah i love the idea of like how i put it, like slowing down the uh almost like the momentum of stupid decisions like recognizing and being aware in the moment like that wasn't smart now i need to just stop yeah. slow down that way i'm not making like because i think that stuff kind of can build up especially in like a big time adventure like that and if you're it's just compounding and if you get lucky once or twice or three times like it's eventually it's gonna catch up you know absolutely that's crazy so what did it feel like uh finishing that you know like that's so cool because i'm i'm guessing a lot of people wouldn't say their first major backpacking trip through hike was on the hey duke so how did that feel to like finish that up you know it was interesting because i had wanted to do the hey duke because I really like Utah and I love the desert. Obviously, I live in Utah now, you know, yeah. so uh, there's a correlation there. But I had wanted to do it because I was attracted to the beauty. I was attracted to the challenge and to the solitude. And I just really didn't like the idea of, you know, doing a through hike on a trail where there was going to be, you know, probably, I don't know, hundreds of uh, people in my cohort, if not thousands, right, on the AT or the PCT. Yeah. And um, so I... I had all of those reasons that I wanted to do the trail or the route. I didn't necessarily think that it was going to be above and beyond my kind of outdoor competency, if that makes sense, because yeah. I had so many adventures before. I just knew that it was going to be different being out there for such a long period of time and being mostly on my own for such a long period of time. But I kept waiting for an epiphany or for, you know, a personal insight from all of that time on the trail and all of that time to think and you know I was certainly looking for mental clarity and um you know just kind of that idea of seeing something change in myself yeah and what I realized the closer I got to the finish was that I I didn't really have an epiphany um I actually wrote an Instagram post about this shortly after coming back from the trail but the epiphany you know of any that I had was that I realized that I didn't need to stop like yeah. I, you know, on that last night before I finished up in Zion, I was feeling very present and I was feeling very content, but I, you know, mm -hmm. I would have loved to keep going. Um, I wasn't really ready for it to be over. And, um, you know, yeah, I felt satisfaction from finishing the trail and I 
thought it was, you know, it was a really cool um, spot that I had just been able to traverse, but I, I could have kept going. Wow. That's amazing. I, I mean, I love that is an epiphany, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of like the, just any realization in the moment. Um, last question just about Hey Duke, selfishly, one, is the arches get, is the arches section scary at all? Cause I'm, I'm like mildly terrified of heights. <laughs> I don't think so, Okay, uh, but, uh, <laughs> But, you know, take it with a grain of salt because I started in Arches at two in the morning. <laughs> I ran most of it um, okay. in the first couple of hours. So I did yeah. a lot of it by night. And I do remember that there was one section where I ended up sliding into a pothole uh, <laughs> because I felt like that was the only, you know, feasible That's... way of getting from this one canyon into another drainage. Yeah. Uh, I since talked to some local guide friends that I have and they were like, why did you do that? You could have just walked around. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it was scary. There was this one section with the pothole, but you know, you could probably find a bypass. Right. Sounds good. That makes me feel good. Well, and also like if you just had to break down the whole trail, how much of it is on like never ending nonstop desert dirt roads versus like, you know, when you're in the middle of Zion or the Grand Canyon, that's like a different feeling. Um, there's not that much in terms of road walking, to be honest. The biggest okay. stretch of road walking is going from the Grand Canyon to Zion, because if you're familiar with the topography of Southern Utah and Northern Arizona, you have to get across the Arizona Strip at that point. Yeah. You know, you come out of uh, the Grand Canyon via Kanab Creek and Hack Canyon, and then you have 42 miles of uh, just dirt road walking <laughs> over to Zion. And it's the most mind-numbing, boring road walking you will ever have because there's nothing there. You're just out exposed. It's straight for 42 miles. I mean, it is it is brutal. Um, so that one's pretty rough, and it's right before the finish. But outside of that, the road walking sections are very short. I think there's one coming out of Canyonlands, um, sorry, actually Capitol Reef, and there's yeah. one going across the Henrys. But it's it's minimal. You know, the vast majority of it is incredibly beautiful. And uh, then you have those couple sections where you have to walk roads. That's awesome. And then in a weird way, like the desolation is probably super beautiful. Oh, maybe. it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it is it is stunning. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, so Sunny, I know you've told this your story about how you kind of, you know, I don't know if it was discovered adventure, but how you like went all in on adventure. Can you just give us the really brief summary? Cause I, I'm, I'm obviously like very inspired by it. Like a lot of people probably are. And it's always inspiring when you see somebody that is uh, following their passion and like following their heart. So can you kind of like talk about that a little bit? Absolutely, Chris. I'll try to keep it to three minutes or less, but no promises. <laughs> We got um, time we're going so okay cool well the <laughs> short story is i um did not start out as an adventurer or an athlete i went to harvard college and harvard business school and i worked in finance and consulting for all of my 20s i didn't really discover um, any endurance sports or adventure sports um, until my mid-20s. So right around the time of business school, I got into rock climbing and I got into ultra running. And uh, then I finished business school and, you know, walked away from my MBA with a great career opportunity in consulting, but also six figures in student loans. And I uh, went all in consulting, you know, thinking that that was going to be my life and my career. But I yeah. realized very quickly that I did not thrive um, and I just wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't happy in that job. And by the way, when I say, you know, that I wasn't thriving, like I was doing really well on paper, you know, I was like getting all the promotions and delivering good work and, you know, doing all the things, but I just woke up angry every morning and, you know, didn't like the life that I'd built for myself. And so um, I was able to use the money that I was earning as a consultant to pay off those six figures in student loans very rapidly in about four years. And I walked away from my career two weeks after paying off the last of those loans and moved into a $3,000 Chevy Astro van to go and be on the road and adventure full time. And that's more or less what I've been doing ever since. That's amazing. What So what originally got you into ultra running and, and climbing too? I mean, you know, describing like saying like from a non-athletic background to being like, no, I'm going to go run ultras and climb giant cliffs. Like, how does that happen? Serendipity, I think <laughs> main answer, and a general search and quest for things that were um, bringing me joy and you know were creating fulfillment um, yeah. for me. So, 
rock climbing, I started in business school in a rock gym because I was looking for an activity to do with my classmates that didn't involve just, you know, going out for drinks, which is what we're doing all the time. So uh, there were a couple of us that took an introductory ballet class in a rock gym together. And, um, you know, with a couple of folks, it didn't stick. And with some folks like yeah. myself, it did stick. So that turned from uh, the first lesson in the gym to lots and lots and lots of climbing first in the gym and then outdoors and then outdoors on, you know, bigger cliffs and, you know, more adventurous types of climbing. So that was the climbing part. Uh, on the running part, um, actually a similar story. I I graduated from college and I decided to sign up for a half marathon because I felt like I needed a goal in my life beyond just going to work every day. Yeah. And a half marathon seemed really difficult and really daunting. So I signed up for that to have something to work towards. I finished the half marathon. I thought it was the hardest thing I'd ever done and promised myself I'd never, ever do anything that stupid ever again. And, uh, you know, that promise kind of stuck with me for a couple of years. But then I was in business school and again, looking for goals, looking for more things to do, trying, you know, trying to find challenges and ways to push myself. And I signed up for a marathon and, you know, ran a marathon and then I ran another marathon didn't really like it very much. But it was just kind of this, you know, thing to do because why not? I'm a type yeah. A person. <laughs> and uh, after I'd finished business school, I very randomly got an opportunity to run an ultra marathon while I was volunteering in Madagascar. And I, you know, jumped on that out of, uh, in all honesty, boredom in my volunteer job, <laughs> and a lack of other things to do. Um, I love so, it. Yeah, I signed up for it, you know, three weeks notice. And I, managed to somehow uh pull a 100k out of my butt essentially <laughs> very very hard and very painful and very much not recommended because it's not a good thing to do to your body you know to try and do something that long without preparation but that was the moment you know finishing that 100k and kind of going through the high afterwards yeah. that was the moment that i really became an adventure athlete what um I'm always curious about this. This might be the reason why I started the podcast like a long, long time ago at this point. But like to you, what is it that speaks to you about doing these really hard things? Like, why is it something you come back to? And, and you know, like you just described running 100K with no training and somehow that wasn't the last 100K you've ever ran. You wanted to do it more and more. And it's funny because I like I understand like I've definitely feel the same way, but it's hard to put into words, you know. I I think you're hitting on something there, Chris, because it is really difficult to put into words, but it's also a very strong intrinsic motivation to want to do these things, right? Because otherwise, why would you spend that much time and effort and you know potentially money on pursuing seemingly crazy activities in the outdoors? Yeah. I think my answer is that I was never motivated by the physical aspect of things. I mean, in some ways, yeah, because, you know, truth be told, early on in college, I got into running, which was really just jogging, you know, a couple miles here and there on pavement, um, because that seemed like a really easy way to do something for my fitness and manage my weight. Um, but, you know, so that was the physical motivation in the first place. But it never like that motivation never went far enough to actually turn me into an athlete or really get me hooked. You know, I was running, yeah. um, you know, semi-regularly because I felt like I had to and it was a good thing to do, not because I wanted to. And that all changed with that 100K in Madagascar. And I think, you know, what attracts me to big adventures and mind you, they don't necessarily have to be physical, though. Most of the ones that I've chosen ended up being physical. What attracts me to big adventures is the again mental clarity that I get when I'm out there and that pure presence and in a way mindfulness and focus that allows me to just be in the moment and not think about anything other than where I am and what I'm doing. And that is a really, really powerful feeling. I think it's um, you know, something that I've once seen described in a psychology journal as um, the pleasurable loss of self. So essentially, you know, uh, a way to move beyond your ego and be fully absorbed in the moment, which I think is really just a different way of describing flow state, right? It's it's that moment where you're fully present and um, nothing else matters. And that is liberating and empowering and not something that is easy for me to find in my day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Do you think there's any... Um correlation 
to that idea and people who are type A or people who are big thinkers, you know, like you kind of were describing, like you kind of just stop thinking at a certain point. Um, and I know I've done ultras where like 10 seconds of a song is just going through my head over and over. Like people are like, what do you think about an ultras? And I'm like, I had 10 seconds of a song in my head for five hours. And then I had the deepest thought and biggest realization I've ever had in my life right after that. So that's kind of how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's, you know, that experience is something that I can 100% relate to. It's, it's that beauty of, you know, being able to, in a way, just stretch time, you yeah. know, and stretch time in both directions, right? When you think that a minute can feel like it's forever or, you know, a five hour stretch to the next aid station can feel like it goes by in the blink of an eye. And that's... Yeah. That's something really special. But, you know, your question was, do I think that there's a correlation between, um, you know, kind of type A or big thinkers and seeking these types of activities? I mean, uh, my experience is the experience of one, right? So it's really yeah. um, anecdotal data rather than <laughs> actual data. Um, so I can't really speak to that. But I will say that, you know, I've done a good amount of um, well, reading, but also, of course, I know a lot of people, you know, who um, also pursue these adventures. And yeah, it does seem to me like um, the more, um, you know, the more I'm trying to think about how to properly phrase this, uh, there's a high incidence of, you know, type A and yeah. highly educated and or you know highly career powered folks out there who pursue these types of adventures and you know that may have something to do with um the ability to just actually you know have the funds and invest the money mm. to, be able to do things like this yeah, because a lot sure. of them are not cheap right but it also yeah. may have to do with the fact that um i think for all of us you know it's kind of part of human nature to seek out challenges yeah. and if you have a track record of seeking out and mastering challenges all the time then you know you may be more inclined to go and find new challenges where you have uncertainty and you're not sure if you can master them yeah, I think the uncertainty is huge for that because like going in, you almost don't want to know if you can finish or not. Like, I don't know, like starting something like the Hey Duke, you're probably like, I don't know if I can do this. And that makes it exciting and that makes it like engaging and stuff. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, uncertainty for me is a huge motivator. And it's been an interesting learning lesson, actually, you know, going through the years of COVID where I always said from the very beginning, I love uncertainty. I thrive on uncertainty. I don't want predictability because if things are predictable, then I'm just executing and it's boring. Yeah. I, I did realize through COVID as well that that craving for uncertainty has to come from a foundation of having very strong roots and a lot of you know grounding and balance underneath you. Because when COVID kind of took away all certainty and all yeah. elements of life, I, I kind of lost my appetite for uncertainty. I was like, it's too much. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I think we I all did. To on a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, um, I definitely want to hear about uh, your um, ascent. Well, and I think you might have done this multiple times on, and I'm going to say it wrong. That's why I'm like stalling here. Aconcagua. <laughs> ah, say, it, say it one more time. Aconcagua. I've read it so many times. It's like the word kernel where you read it so many times. You're like, I don't know how to pronounce this, but, uh, but yeah, can you talk about that experience and, uh, you know, um, like maybe some of the realizations you had about, um, these adventures and just the, uh, accessibility to women with them? You know, Aconcagua has been a formative mountain for me, and I, um, I've i been on Aconcagua many, many times, and I'm actually preparing to go back there in just about three weeks to lead another women's team on the mountain. But I really came of age on that mountain through two or three different adventures. The first one was my very first time that I climbed it. I climbed it solo and unsupported, you know, carrying all of my gear, not using any mules or porters or anything like that. And that was what triggered a lot of my work and advocacy for women empowerment and gender equity in the mountains that is, you know, now um, at the very core of what I do. And the reason that, you know, that experience in Aconcagua triggered um, me and kind of spurred me into action on gender equity is that it was very interesting. You know, there were a bunch of solo climbers on the mountain. It's not very unusual at all to have folks do it solo. Yeah. Um, it's not even that unusual to have them do it unsupported and maybe a little bit more. But anyway, point being that, you know, 
plenty of people do it. It's a mountain with a lot of traffic, a lot of infrastructure, um, low objective hazard. You know, it's a great high altitude peak to kind of, you know, develop your expedition experience and tackle on your own. And yet I was getting so many, you know, weird looks and comments and feedback being like, wait, what, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I'm climbing the mountain, duh. <laughs> and uh, you, know, you think people, I'm doing? <laughs> exactly. People just weren't really getting it or were incredibly surprised that a woman would do that on her own. Where I was like, what about like all of these guys over there who are also here solo and you know maybe unsupported and you know nobody's questioning them i'm like well, what's different for me you know there's no reason that aconcagua should you know be any more um, out of the ordinary or you know impossible for me than for any of the men and because of that experience and because it was so profound and such a you know market um you know biased reception that i was getting i came back from that and i said okay i'd really like to do something about this because you know i'd spent a lot of time thinking about gender equity um for you know many years growing up in a very kind of women you know first or <laughs> strong women household but also um having gone to an all-girls school and then working in finance and consulting yeah. so that was a topic that i was very aware of but i didn't realize just how bad it was in the mountains until that climb of aconcagua mm. It reminds me almost of, I can't remember. I watched this Ted talk a long time ago and I can't remember the title or who said it or anything, but I, but the point that I remembered, especially cause I'm a dad of three daughters was this idea of like going to a playground and you're seeing the little boys tumbling down the slides and climbing on stuff. And people aren't really generally like saying anything to them. And then you see the little girls doing the same thing and they're climbing on top of the structures and all this. And you're seeing more parents likely to say like, be careful, watch out, be okay. And it's it was almost like this idea of like, probably unintentionally and probably out of the best intentions from the parents, but like total blind spot is building this fear in them for adventures. Um, and I think it might've been from a lady named Caroline Paul I'm pretty sure I'm like 90% sure. Uh, and it was a great TED talk, but I just, I'll always remember that. And I wonder if it's almost kind of like that same thing, just you're now a grown, a grown up. I think it's very much the same thing. And, um, you know, the, the term that I have kind of adopted that came out of, um, I think some HBS research is second generation gender, <clears throat> gender bias, pardon me second generation gender bias it's um you know bias that isn't necessarily intentional and that may not be overt but it still tremendously impacts our expectations of what we each can do or what somebody else can do mm. and i think that's exactly what um you know the playground example that you know you brought up is demonstrating it's exactly what i experienced in aconcagua you know i mean i'm not necessarily saying that um things aren't right unless there's 50 50 gender parity in the mountains right i don't necessarily think that's the uh the you know quote unquote desired end stage but i do think from having a lot of experience in the mountains and from talking to a lot of people that you know are passionate about the mountains men and women i do think that there's a huge gap between you know how many women would like to participate in adventure activities such as mountaineering and how many women actually do yeah. because there are you know perceptions both external and internal, that mountaineering isn't something that, you know, women typically do because, you know, it's just, that's not our place. And that's changing, thankfully, yeah. but it's um, changing slowly and there's a lot more work to be done yet. You know, at the moment, one out of um, every 10 climbers um, are women on 8,000 meter peaks. So 90% are men, only 10% are women. And then you know, don't even get me started about intersectionality and, you know, ethnicity and all of that. So yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, a lot of work to be done to make these spaces welcoming. And I think, you know, if I may add on to that, I think it's not just about um, bringing more women into the mountains, because in the end, you know, mountaineering and generally speaking, adventure sports, I think are, you know, largely a, they're kind of a luxury activity, you know, mm -hmm. and something that is very much um, self-expression and not one of the essentials in life right but these activities are really really empowering and can be very transformative on a personal level and i think that by opening the space up and making it more welcoming to more 
women, we then see a contribution to gender equity on a much broader scale in society. Yeah, no, that's wonderfully said. And yeah, that was, that's absolutely incredible. And it's, I, I really like how you had this realization climbing. And then afterwards though, you actually like put it to action and now you're leading expeditions up there and you just said you're planning for another one. How many expeditions have you led at this point? Oh, um, I actually don't keep track as far as the numbers go, but I know for Aconcagua, yeah. um, you know, I've been down there every year pretty much since 2014. And there's been a year break early on and then, you know, during the pandemic. But um, so that makes it what six or seven years. And um, I've led multiple expeditions um, many of those years. So I think it's going to be my 12th or 13th rotation on the mountain coming up here this coming January. And then I lead expeditions to a lot of other destinations as well, you know, including um, Kilimanjaro, Nepal. Um, Peru, I mean, you know, a bunch of moms in the US as well. So um, there's a lot. I actually built a business on, yeah. you know, the very desire to um, to bring more women into the outdoors. And that business is called Awe Expeditions. And it's specifically a mountaineering and backcountry adventure um, guide service, essentially for women by women. And, um, you know, that's been that's been really important um, in my life because, um, again, you know, what I saw in Aconcagua just didn't sit right with me. I wanted to do something about it. Yeah. And, um, that's what I do now. That's amazing. I I did a lot of research on uh, awe expeditions on your website there. And the thing that I kind of like captured my imagination um, was the idea of the post trip integration. Um, cause you go out and have this experience. Um, I'm sure it's like a wonderful, like bonding, like all adventures are where you're bringing these people who have may not have met each other, may not have a pre-existing relationship with each other. And then just through this process of climbing a mountain, it's bonding them together. Um, but can you kind of describe the post-trip integration afterwards? Cause I love that. Cause I love the idea of like, not only are you doing these things that are potentially life-changing, but by doing the work afterwards and really like thinking about it and integrating the lessons into your life, that is when it actually becomes life-changing. You know, at this point, um, post-trip integration is something that is still very, you know, it's very informal and very unstructured and very much depends on the team. Yeah. Right? What I see a lot of the time. So one of the things that I think is different about all expeditions versus a lot of other um, guide companies is that yeah, you know, we we go and we have teams on big mountains or on big backcountry back adventures, but the activity in some ways is, you know, it's a catalyst for a shared experience. And there's a lot of focus on the shared experience versus just the catalyst activity and yeah. learning how to do stuff and getting to the summit, right? Those things are important. And, you know, we always make sure that we have, um, you know, fantastic, fantastic setups on location, but really it's about the shared experience. And that goes from the, um, you know, kind of the pre-trip preparation and getting to meet your team um, at least digitally ahead of the the trip and getting to bond, you know, over communal dinners and kind of kick off conversations and setting the tone before you get on the mountain yeah. all the way to that post-trip integration that you were asking about, which is that, you know, we don't just finish um, an adventure or a climb and then send people on their way. You know, we always have a post-trip um, communal team meal to celebrate another hotel night, you know, and then frequently, again, depending on the team, but frequently um, the team's stay in touch after the climbs and, you know, have WhatsApp chats going and, yeah. you know, continue to kind of move forward that, that bond and the shared experience that we build on the mountain. And, you know, sometimes these experiences can be incredibly powerful and incredibly deep. And that's really what awe is, as I said, focused on, you know, it's the, the experience versus the actual mountain or trail or, you know, technical thing that you're learning. Yeah. No, I love that. Is there any kind of like, commonalities you see with the groups coming out of these things? You know, it's difficult to say because um, we have a very, very diverse set of um, expedition participants. And, yeah. you know, I think we've had women as young as uh, 21 and as old as 68. And we have, you know, folks from all different backgrounds, be that, you know, different ethnicities, different nationalities, um, different economic backgrounds. So I think the the big commonality that, you know, I observe over and over again is that everybody unites over that shared passion for wanting to 
push themselves and wanting to expand a comfort zone but do it in an environment that's you know supportive and that is safe to be vulnerable in because that's where the best learning happens right it's if you can really bring your whole person into a situation and you don't have to worry about how you're being perceived or what other people think of you and of course in any social environment there is always a little bit of that yeah but you know I and the expedition leaders who work for Avi try to do what we can to, you know, mitigate that as much as possible. And as I said, really make the environment, um, you know, very, very welcoming, very connected and uh, very supportive. Yeah. Do you find so I found this just through a few um, like multi-day stage race kind of stuff. But there is that aspect where it's like, um, you know, the group is very accepting because you're all kind of in it together in that way. But then there's this other kind of aspect where you're not seeing yourself for like a week. Like you don't see your reflection. Like I don't, you don't, it's just crazy. Like coming back from something like that and then realizing just how many mirrors we have like all over the place. And so it's not only the group kind of like accepting who you are, but like it is this for me anyways, it was this strange experience of like me accepting who I was too, because you kind of just let it go that you even are an external thing. I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think it goes back to that, you know, what I would say, the pleasurable loss of self. Right? Yes. So, <laughs> you know, um, I do think that there is some of that, you know, on a lot of big adventures where yeah, when you're out there and you are focused entirely on either being present with yourself without kind of having, you know, reflection back, um, you know, yeah. to what you look like or, you know, how uh, the outside world may see you. Um, combined with that really, you know, supportive and welcoming environment. I think that's an incredibly powerful experience. And that's, that experience is really, you know, what awe strives to just be able to provide platforms for so that people can experience it. And I like to think that most of the time we succeed. Sometimes we probably don't for some people, but, you know, most of the time, I think um, from the feedback that I'm hearing that works out exactly as intended. That's amazing. Well, so I also, I guess there's a one other thing I, I read. I can't, I can't remember which article it was. There's been many articles, and they're all, they're all great. But you mentioned this idea, and I thought it was really powerful. But it was uh, that tried isn't as powerful as it did, and yes. kind of drawing upon that when it got when a challenge got really hard and really difficult. And I think that is a really like wonderful mantra or something to like kind of bring into your adventure, whatever your adventure may be. Yeah, I think, you know, that's really, uh, really important. So it's nuanced and it's uh, difficult as well, because, yeah, you're completely right. You know, I think that um, doing um, is, you know, incredibly powerful and it's so empowering to just put yourself out there and to say, okay, I'm going for this, you know, I'm doing it. And let's just see what happens. But then there's also a flip side to that medallion, uh, medallion that I found recently, which, well, more or less recently, I guess, you know, <laughs> the, years. Um, the flip side in my mind is that when you're trying something really big and really daunting, um, in my mind, you know, the inspiring part is really where you put yourself out there and you go for it. Um, but in order to put yourself out there and to go for it, I do think it's really important that you give yourself permission to turn around or to abort if you come to a point where things aren't right or aren't safe. Yeah. So, you know, the way I think about that is, you know, if you're on a big ultra or a big mountain run and, you know, you get to terrain that you just aren't sure that you can cover safely, you know, what do you do? Right. Do you push forward because you said you were going to go and get this done? And, you know, now if you don't get it done, you don't have any consistency and you're going to lose your credibility. I think yeah. the answer is no. Yeah. You know, the if you have that adaptability and the flexibility and the confidence in some ways to be okay with turning around, which, you know, traditionally we would dub as failure. I don't think of it that way, but, you know, a lot of people would call it failure. Yeah. If you have that flexibility, that actually is what enables you to try for bigger and bigger things, because otherwise you're going to be playing it safe, right? You're only going to go for things where you know that you can go and pull it off. And that goes exactly counter to that uncertainty that you and I were talking about. That's such a big motivating factor for us. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, um, I mean, I think also once you have the confidence to change your plans, 
too. I think that's like a big tool that you can bring to the rest of your life. You know, like it doesn't, and especially if you've given, if you know, if you're comfortable with your decision and you're like, I know I gave it everything I had that day. Um, it's totally, yeah, it's not a failure whatsoever. No, I love that. Um, I wanted to hear really quickly about the Iditarod trail invitational. Um, I, that whole thing just captures my imagination like crazy. It's a wild adventure. (laughs) I love that you're asking about the Heyduk and about the Iditarod because (laughs) these are in all honesty, races and adventures that I actually don't talk a lot about um but they are some of my favorites and the Iditarod is interesting I mean a lot of people know it as you know the really famous dog sled race Mm -hmm. up in Alaska that goes from Anchorage to Nome and it's about a thousand miles and um you know it's it's a big thing but what most people don't know is that there are a couple of different human powered version of the same race as well and that's what I've been getting into over the last two and a half, three years now. Um, there is a 350 mile version called the Iditarod Trail Invitational. And then actually that same, you know, Iditarod Trail Invitational also has a thousand mile option if you've already once completed uh, the short option, the 350 and kind of the shot short, your... quote unquote. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> you've ironed out your rookie kinks and you know what you're doing. And um, I signed up for this race uh, two years ago for the first time in 2021, coming out of the pandemic mm-hmm. and uh, decided to do it on skis um, for a lot of different reasons. You know, we talked about uncertainty being a motivating factor in these big adventures. And that's exactly what I was searching in Alaska. I mean, I had done, you know, the Hayduke before I'd done, you know, a lot of big mountain climbs and speed records and big trail runs and, you know, ultra races and whatnot. But I had never done a 350 mile race. And I'd never done an extreme cold environment where you're, you know, able to actually produce cardio output. Because typically in the mountains, when I'm in the extreme cold, you know, you're up high at altitude, you're in a hypoxic state and you can't yeah. move it. So it's a very different ball game. But uh yeah, so the uncertainty of the I did a rot, you know, that drew me in. And um <laughs> I went out there and it was actually quite funny. I was trying to sweet talk my way into the thousand mile distance <laughs> the race directors. Again, going back to my naivete and you know, kind of uh maybe overall overconfidence. But I talked to the race directors and I said, Hey, I've done all these things, you know, I'd really like yeah. to go try for the thousand mile distance. I understand that you typically have to do the 350 first, but really the 350 has eight stations and, you know, it's like, it seems like it's pretty approachable and I'd really like to try and do the whole thing. And the race directors were like, yeah, no, sorry. (laughs) So they (laughs) did let me into the 350, which is also unusual. Typically you have to qualify for that with the previous winter, which I didn't have that experience, but they said no to the 1000. And in retrospect, I'm incredibly glad that they did. Was this kind of like a Harvard business strategy kind of situation where you're like, I'm going to ask for way too much and then they're going to let me settle for something maybe they wouldn't normally do it? No, not really. I, mean, <laughs> I was pretty confident that I was going to be able to get into the 350, you know, yeah. without prior experience. But no, that's really, awesome. the reason that I asked for the 1000 is because in the long term, what I would like to do and, you know, the ultimate uh, uncertainty project for me is I'd like to um, go and ski to the South Pole solo and ideally go after the speed record down there and you know the south pole is um just over 700 miles and um you know it seemed like doing the iditarod 1000 would be a a great kind of checkout um test for the south pole versus the 350 which is you know only half the length of the south pole and it's got all these aid stations and you know it has support and so it just didn't feel quote-unquote hardcore enough and of course you know going out to alaska and doing a race like that it's um, time consuming and it's expensive. And so I was trying to be frugal and to be like, I want to come up to Alaska. I'm going to go and, you know, pay out of pocket to do this, but I'd really like to go and do the 1000 mile distance um, right off the bat. And the race directors would not budge. And I'm really, really glad that they didn't because, um, you know, so I signed up for the 350 grudgingly, right? I'm like, okay, whatever. (laughs) And this was like seven or eight months prior to the race. And I was expecting that, you know, I would be getting all of these emails from the race with like, um, you know, just checklists and the mandatory gear list and all of that. And come December, I still hadn't heard anything. The race is in late February. So in December, I reached out to the race directors 
And I said, hey, you know, I haven't gotten any emails. I don't know if I fell off your email list or what happened. And uh, they came back to me and said, oh, yeah, actually, we didn't have you on the email list. So thank you for reaching out because, you know, we want to make sure that you get the communications. Yeah. And I responded back and I said, OK, so I, I assume you send out like a trip handbook or, you know, gear list or whatever. Can you please send that to me? And the response that I got was, no, there's no gear list. Um, you know, we assume that if you do this race, you know what you're doing. You know, you have to have prior experience. And yeah. so there's no mandatory gear. It's up to you. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> that was the moment where I started taking it seriously because I essentially had counted on the race telling me what to do. And yeah. was teaching me how to be yeah. successful in that type of environment right and they were like no if you are admitted into this race you know you have all the credentials to know what you're doing and you're gonna have to figure it out on your own and uh That's yeah amazing. that kind of kicked me into gear did you reach out to anybody who had done it before I did yeah and I yeah. typically don't ever do that you know I yeah. am very much a winged fly by the seat of my pants type of person but once I realized that there was no mandatory gear I reached out to a bunch of race veterans and it was amazing you know to see how helpful the community was to a rookie and yeah. uh yeah, ended up yeah. Doing I've I've interviewed uh Ryan Wanless um and Kari Gibbons um about the Iditarod and Ryan ended up doing the thousand mile, but that was one thing I remember he told me is that um the community and and it just seemed like Ryan was just such a sponge for information, like asking people for advice and, and all of that, that it seems like a very supportive group of people. It is a very supportive group, though. I do have beef with Ryan specifically because oh, perfect. This, past yeah. year, this past year, you know, on the second uh, time that I did it and he was um, that was his 1000 year, I guess. Yeah, yes, he was yeah. ahead of me coming into Shell Lake, which is like day three or day four of the course. And um, he freaking ordered the last burger that <laughs> Shell Lake had. And he didn't just order one burger. He ordered two. And because he ordered two, when I got there, they didn't have any burgers anymore. So Ryan, you owe me a burger. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I got to meet him in person for the first time this summer. And I'd interviewed him like six, probably six different times. And it was so cool. Like I just loved him and his wife, Emily. They're just awesome, really cool human beings. But no, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, the Iditarod always kind of like was the thing that seemed like to me one of the ultimate adventures um i normally don't ask about like what's next or whatever but you mentioned south pole um is there anything like in the works for that or is that something that's going to be like a long-term um striving for kind of thing the south pole is definitely a long-term goal and you know long-term project because it's incredibly expensive yeah and then you know once i have a way to pay for it i also have to not be you know uh kind of last minute and fly by the seat of my pants about that but i have to you know really put in the work and train which i typically don't do so yeah. um you know that is one of those things where i'm 37 now and i want to have done that by the time i'm 45 so i still have you know a number of years but Really, the next thing, you know, concretely that's coming up actually is that I'm going back to Alaska um, for the ITI for the third year in a row. And this year is going to be fun because I convinced my husband to do it with me. Now, my husband is 62, going to be almost 63 when we go up there. And he is not an endurance athlete. He's never done an ultra in his life. And I once again, sweet talked the race directors into letting him in because I promised that, you know, we were going to stay together and, you know, we both really want this and they decided to say yes. So we'll see how that works out. That is amazing. Hey, can I call dibs on interviewing your husband once we're, you guys are done with that? Because that sounds amazing. Yeah. Please do. I think it's going to be a really fun adventure. I hope um, it's going to be on bikes, which is this whole different story because I'm not a biker at all. Like I know nothing about bikes. They don't like me. I don't like them. But um, yeah, that'll that'll be the next thing. This is what I appreciate about your spirit is you're like, I've, I haven't done a ski race. I'm going to sign up for like the hardest ski race ever. I haven't done a bike race. What's a really hard bike race to do? Like, that's amazing. I think that's really cool. Well, it's, you know, it was a matter of elimination really because... <laughs> It wasn't so much that I wanted to be on the bike. It was more that I really wanted to do this race with yeah. my husband because it's been such a beautiful and such a personally transformative experience for me in the last yeah. two years. And I, you know, talked to him so much about it that when I asked if he could potentially imagine doing this with me, he said yes. And because he's not an endurance athlete and because he's, you know, 62 going on 63 and because he's a lifelong climber and has had all sorts of accidents, which, you know, create issues with his knees and ankles and, you know, yeah. general 
points and whatnot. Um, it seemed like doing it on foot just wasn't going to be an option for him. Uh, doing it on skis also wasn't going to be an option for him. And so that only leaves the bike. And yeah. now that's what we're doing. That sounds amazing. Um, that's so cool. So the last thing to kind of wrap up, uh, I could talk to you for hours and hours, by the way. So thank you for sharing your time with us. Um, but I, I teach a seventh grade leadership class at the end of the day. Um, and I've done it for like three years now. And the group I have this year is like, it's just an amazing group. Like it's a great way to end a school day. Um, but I'm, I want to hear just from you, like, is there one, I mean, I know there's thousands, but is there one particular leadership principle that kind of stands out to you, uh, when you are organizing and executing these, uh, expeditions? That's a great question. And I think, you know, when I think about leadership principles, um, the one that comes to mind is actually something that um, I took away from my career as a strategy consultant of all things, and that is true north. And what you know, I mean by that, or what you know, my previous employer, Bain and Company, uh, kind of used that terminology for true north is to follow your compass and to you know stay focused and keep moving towards the things that truly matter to you, um, no matter you know, what direction um, may seem the most convenient or easiest or whatever, you know, it's important to stay true to that true north um, that we all have in ourselves. And I actually would take that one step further and would say that in order to, you know, figure out um, what that direction is, I think it's incredibly important for all of us as leaders and just as people as well, to think about alignment, right? It's a question of what is important to you in life and how much time do you spend on it? And if there's a mismatch between those two questions, mm -hmm. you need to do something about that. I That is amazing. I'm writing it all down. That's so good. Uh, thank you, Sonny. Thank you for coming on. Where can people kind of like follow your adventures or, or if they're interested in all expeditions, like where can people check that out? You can find me on the internet, on social media. Um, my parents tried to make it difficult with my last name. So if I tell you my Instagram handle, you probably won't be able to look it up anyway, but I'm sure Chris will put it in the show notes. Yeah. It is the first initial last name. So Esther is my personal Instagram. All Expeditions is at, you know, at All Expeditions, which is all just one word, A-W Expeditions. And uh, you can also find my website um, as well as the All Expeditions website just through Google search or, you know, type in www.allexpeditions org, and um, i'm also on facebook and yeah it's been really fun you know being able to chat about all of this and chris i appreciate all of the questions about the hey duke and alaska which as i said aren't topics that i get to talk about all that much i love it i just hope that um ryan sends you a burger at some point <laughs> i would hope that he will <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on sonny thanks chris all righty that wraps up this week's episode and i got through half of my notes with sunny maybe not even half so um i would be absolutely delighted to have her back on the show um be able to hear about some of these other events that she has taken on she is quite the incredible human being uh, And like i said in the intro i was just honored to sit down and chat with her and kind of get to kind of hear about her experiences um but not just the experiences but also kind of the way her mindset had shifted uh throughout them or how she handled certain situations in her mind uh, i think so much of adventure that interests me is there's obviously the physical aspect of this is hard physically you know like when i think about her um sliding down the rocks at the hayduke trail i'm like dude that is physically hard and she's probably like exhausted from all the accumulation of all the days building up and things like that um but i like to think about how that plays mentally too because when things physically get hard that's when we can kind of like let down our mental defenses and that's when we can start becoming mentally weak uh that's why there's the whole saying in ultra running like don't quit on the uphill right or don't die in the chair i think is one of the sayings like don't which by the way now i think about it, like when do you quit like 
don't quit on the uphill, but also don't quit when you're sitting down. But anyways, I think I think the whole point is uh, when things get hard, that's not the time to make the decision to call it quits, you know, because um, your brain might not be functioning at 100%. And I, that's why I think it's an important takeaway, and I'm glad Sonny got to bring this up, but like the idea that when you make one deci- one bad decision, it might not have a really bad outcome, but if you start, if it becomes a habit and now you're making a lot of bad decisions in a row in the middle of an adventure and really, you know, I guess all of this stuff can also play in life too, right? But um, if you start making too many bad decisions in a row, like that's going to add up and snowball and now it's going to cause like major, major issues. And when you're doing something where you're putting yourself out there and you're in the wilderness, like that can that can truly mean life or death, you know? And I think that's a, it's a lesson we can bring back in our lives as well, where one small bad decision is not gonna, might not necessarily cause a lot of problems, but multiple bad decisions or doing that small bad decision consistently, that's gonna add up and that's gonna accumulate over time. And now we have a bunch of issues that we have to deal with and things like that. So. Um, thought that was a super important lesson. So, uh, yeah, so that wraps up this week's episode. I want to say thank you again to Sunny. I want to say thank you all for tuning in. This was the first episode of 2023. And, uh, yeah, I'm very happy with, uh, with how the year is starting so far. And I'm just excited to see, see what it brings. So, uh, hope you all are out there. Hope you're planning some fun stuff, some things that are really kind of stoking your passion and, and making you excited to live this year. Like we get, we get a whole year in 2023, like let's make the most of it. So, um, all right, we will get back at you next time, next week.